The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please turn with me in God's Word to Luke 14. We come to this 14th chapter in our studies. I'm going to read verses 7 through 24. My message is mostly on 12 through 24, but let me just point out the the setting. In 14.1, Jesus is dining at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, a dinner involving wealthy and powerful people. The first thing he does when he gets there is to heal a man. It's the Sabbath day, so that's a problem in these people's eyes. Now I pick up Luke 14 at verse 7. Hear God's word. Now Jesus told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. Then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he might say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He also said, To the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or your relatives, or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid in the resurrection of the just." When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come now, for everything is ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And others said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife, therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. When the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, And bring in the poor and crippled and lame and blind. And the servant said, Sir, what you've commanded has been done, and still there is room. The master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. 
This is the word of God. Years ago, in what seems like the dark ages, when I was a college student, I was taking heavy credit load, 19 and 20 credits some semesters, trying to get through quicker. And as a result, a lot of times I lost track of what I should be doing. Very common to me today, as a matter of fact. And uh, I remember one sharp experience I had arriving at perhaps my most difficult class of that semester. The professor was a good one. You really learned from her, but she was tough. And my blood almost froze in my veins as she started talking out at the beginning of the class about the essay that we would put on her desk as we left the room that day. Guess what? I had no clue that an essay was due that day. Now, I had the syllabus, and it said, yes, an essay, indeed. I quick looked at the, yes, indeed. I simply forgot it. What a sinking, this is the kind of thing dreams are made of, right? When you dream, you're not ready. Well, I really didn't have it with me. What do I do? Well, the end of the class, everyone's filing by the professor's desk, dropping their papers, and I said, face the music. That's all I can do. I said, Dr. Smith, I have no essay for you. I also have no valid excuse to offer you whatsoever. Forty minutes ago, I remembered this assignment. Up till then, I had completely forgotten it. Well, this woman professor, you know, she had these glasses with a little chain around her neck, and she looked at me over her glasses as if to assess what kind of fool was before her. And she said, Michael... Your honesty beats the silly excuses I normally hear. You have 48 hours to do the essay, and you'll have seven points taken off your grade. I said, thank you. Left the room, happy to receive mercy from a tough professor who could have easily said, zero. That's all I'll give you. But because I was honest, she gave me a second chance. Well, the Bible says that not all, not all forms of unbelief are alike. We tend to think the kind of unbelief God must hate would be the atheist or the severe, critical, stubborn agnostic who shakes his fist at God. As a matter of fact, what we find many times and here in our text is Christ strongly indicting and rebuking those who postured in a posture of belief, and said, sure, I believe. Include me. But yet, their hearts and their minds were saying something quite different. The parable of the great banquet emphasizes that people are saved eternally by simply responding to God's free, gracious invitation. But if they're lost, it's entirely possible they were people who once said, Yes, with their lips, and no, with their actions, so that their true actions offended the great host. We find Jesus here at dinner in a Pharisee's home, almost surprising, I guess, that he would be there. You, if you followed us in Luke, you know he's in severe conflict with the Pharisees in these last chapters, but yet he went to one of their rulers who gave a dinner. You wonder, what was the motive in inviting Jesus, if there had been electronic technology, I'm thinking possibly they'd have a hidden microphone in the centerpiece so they could record what he said and say, now we've got the evidence. Now we've got what we need to indict this fool, this man from Galilee. Well, Jesus didn't tiptoe in that dinner. The first thing he did in coming in 
was heal the man. It was the Sabbath. It was not the first time he had done that, and that was a highly controversial act in their, in their eyes. If that wasn't enough, he comes in and he starts to quietly give a rebuke. I don't know what kind of voice this was, whether it was spoken to a few people or the leader of the feast or who, but he spoke and said, look, are you coming in here vying for the top seats at the head table so you will be looked upon as being the prestigious ones? Far better that you come and sit at the back of the hall. And if your master wants to honor you, let him do that. Now, that certainly had some people blushing after he said that. And then he's not done. He starts saying more in verse 12 about if you're giving a banquet and your only motive is, well, I owe him because he asked me and we pay each other back and you rub my back and I'll rub your back and and we'll all be a nice little tight society together. That's not a reason to give a banquet. Jesus said, why not give one to benefit the poor and the broken people who never get a banquet and receive a reward not from your friends but from the judgment in the resurrection of the just. Many commentators believe as we come to verse 15, and I'm moving pretty quickly here in this passage, the man who speaks out, try to picture the atmosphere that was there. It was pretty tense. If very many people had seen Jesus heal the man at the doorway, heard these two criticisms that he's made, you, you know what a dinner party's like where uh, the awkward relative is there, right? On Thanksgiving or Christmas, and, and they say the awkward thing, and nobody quite knows what to say, and there's kind of a tense silence in the room. Well, that, we think, is, is what was going on when this one man thought he'd sort of melt the ice and call out a pious word and say, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, he could not fault the man too much. He, he was saying a good thing, giving praise to God. We tend to read what he was saying a little bit and think he was kind of saying, blessed is everybody like us who are certainly going to be at, at God's eternal feast. There must have been some presumptuousness about it or Jesus wouldn't have come back to him the way we read that he did in verse 16. And tell this parable of the great banquet, essentially saying by that parable, be sure that you have responded to God's invitation. Don't take it for granted. Don't imagine that you're part of a certain class for whom these things are automatic because many people are going to hear God's invitation and actually scorn to come to him. Consider with me first here a point that I would call excuses that are not reasons. Now, there's broad Bible evidence for the idea of using a banquet or a lavish meal as a symbol for either salvation or the experience of eternal heaven with God. Of course, it's symbolic. don't know that we have to necessarily, you know, you seniors that are looking forward to a nice lunch at Eden Resort on Thursday, you don't necessarily have to picture, well, the first thing that will happen in heaven is a big dinner. God's word isn't necessarily being that literal here, but saying how many human gatherings do we have where the great thing that happens is a common meal, Thanksgiving, Christmas, every holiday, wedding receptions, anniversaries, parties, picnics, barbecues. Think of it. We all plan and enjoy the food that's going to be offered and the feasting that's going to go on and the fellowship. And and Scripture uses this in just the previous chapter of Luke 13, verse 29. 
It was God's kingdom being spoken about where it said, and they will, will come, future tense, they will come from east and west, north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Similarly, Isaiah 25, 6. There the Lord said it very graphically. The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for the people, a banquet of aged wine and the best of meats. Revelation 19.9 chimes in with this, saying that we are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's a consistent symbol. Salvation is like a banquet because we, by nature, are people who in our spirit are starving. And we don't even know what to eat. We're people who go out and try to fill ourselves with things that are not food all the time, like the prodigal son when it said he, de- he desired the food that the pigs were eating. We go and eat pig food. And we think we can fill ourselves up on that which the world has to offer, and it just doesn't fill us. And Jesus used imagery, as you know, in saying in John 6 that whoever eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood will have eternal life. I'm the bread of life. How many images does he pile on that eating and being filled is the equivalent of true faith that trusts him as Lord and finds the spirit and the soul to be filled? Well, the parable teaches that God desires his salvation banquet one day to be a standing room only crowd. That's his intent and his desire. And so we find Jesus speaking here about a curious custom. You have to translate to the first century practice Remember, there were no calendars, day timers, clocks, email, postal service, none of that. So somebody said, my master is going to give a banquet and name the day. Nobody had anything written down. Nobody had, you know, any immediate reminder or a, you know, a a phone that beeped at the right hour or something. So a servant would go out and say, you know, the, the, the feast is Tuesday. You'll be summoned. Are you going to come? And there was that preliminary answer. And, and we take for granted from this text that there was that preliminary answer. Yes, indeed, I'll come. I'm happy to come. Well, then the servant goes out the second time to say, Now, today, the feast is ready. Come in three hours. Come dressed in your best, bathed and, and ready for the feast to honor the host. And then it didn't seem like people were saying the same thing. Because they at first had said yes, but really they meant no. Well, the gospel of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is indeed like a great feast, a banquet spread for the people of God who will respond in repentance and true faith. It was offered first, of course, to Israel. And the covenant of God with the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament was an appeal Isaiah 55, 1 could have been typical of that appeal. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. God had a covenant nation he invited. And again and again his nation said, sure, God, we'll come. We want what you're going to do for us. We want you to bless us. And nominally, in some ways, they indicated that they would come. But then again and again, both as individuals and as a nation, as a whole, they kept stopping and saying, no, wait a minute. We really don't intend to come. We heard earlier in the service, John chapter 1, that reminds us that Jesus came unto his own, the nation of Israel. 
the covenant nation. He came to them and they didn't receive him. But to as many as did receive him, he gave power to become the children of God. Certainly behind this text, there's a primary meaning that is talking about the rejection of Israel and Israel's prior rejection of God and his rejection of them as a group, not as individuals, but as a whole nation. The chilling final sentence of the passage, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet, was addressed at the broad nation of those who thought they would come, those who piously said, sure, I'll come. But in their hearts, they really wouldn't come. I think, however, it certainly can be equated, too, to organized Christianity. For there are many in the churches of our day and every day that assent in some way. Oh, I believe in God. Absolutely. I'm among that 90-plus percent of Americans who believe in God, and they think that's it. I believe in God. Good thing. I believe in the Ten Commandments. Don't ask me to name them in order. I can't do that, but I believe they're good. Oh, yes, I believe in the New Testament and all its principles and doctrines. Don't ask me to apply them too much to my life on a daily basis, but I believe in them. I don't contradict them. And experience shows that in some ways there are no more difficult people to really reach with a heart-changing, life-transforming gospel than the people who have paid it a lip recognition or who know it as a form, as if they had been you know, injected with a vaccine and they caught just enough of the disease to resist it and not catch the whole dose of it. Now let's come to the excuses that are not reasons. The strange refusal of the gospel. It's meant to be overdrawn. It's actually exaggerated if you don't understand it in this text as the servant goes out and tries to draw the guests and they all alike begin to make excuses. And the excuses are ridiculous. You know, they're not even artful excuses. They're stupid excuses. The man says, I've I've bought some land. I'd better go inspect it today. Really? Who buys land without looking at it first? You've already bought it and you have never seen it and you have to see it today? Come on now. That doesn't make sense. I think the next one's even more absurd. I've bought five yoke of oxen. Think of it in Lancaster farming terms. Five yoke of oxen are at least a large John Deere tractor and a combine. Now, I haven't bought these things. I've just bought them on faith that maybe they run, maybe they don't. I have to go today and see if they work. How silly. What a foolish excuse. The third man who was newly married. Actually, there's a thread of something here, you know, because the Old Testament said a newly married man could not be required to go to war for one year. The idea was that he would develop his marriage and spend time with his wife. But this man was saying, I can't come to a party. Why? Bring your wife. That's not an excuse either. These people simply didn't want to come. And they didn't intend to come. They were giving pretexts, smoke screens, cover-ups for the fact that their hearts had no interest in that that they were being invited to do. And many commentators point out that in Near Eastern culture, to refuse that invitation, maybe we wouldn't think this way. You know, I talk all the time with mothers of brides. And, you know, you, if you've planned a wedding lately, you know what I'm talking about. You send out the invitations, RSVP, 
I think some people don't even know what that is today. And 20% of the people don't respond at all. Right? Have you had that experience? And, and then 10% who didn't respond at all show up and bring a friend that wasn't invited. And it's a problem. It's a real problem. The commentators say the master of the feast in Near Eastern culture like this would be absolutely so insulted by this kind of behavior that it would be almost like a declaration of war upon him. So serious was hospitality in that time and the acceptance of it. Now we need to learn a principle that I think is here. Tens of thousands of people are hindered today by procrastinating with Christ, making excuses, Yes, I'm familiar with that, but it just doesn't fit right now with my current pattern of life. When I'm older, when I stop working, I'll settle into that and get more serious about it. Here's the principle. That in spiritual matters, it seems that the more priceless something is in terms of ultimate value, the less human beings will care to have it. Almost as if the attractiveness of an object is in inverse ratio to its actual worth. Cheap things, worthless things, we run after, we grab, we push each other out of the way. Did you ever hear of Black Friday? I, don't, I hope you didn't experience the pepper spray. I never shop on Black Friday. I don't condemn you if you did. I just think it's one of the silliest days of the year, and I won't be part of it. It feels like a cattle call to me. Get out there and grab this stuff. It's really not very worthwhile, and if you shop around any other day of the year, you can probably get it just as easily and almost as cheap. But grab the stuff. Be part of the great rush. What stuff are we grabbing? Electronic fads that are going to be outdated by another electronic fad in three years? Look at the way my principle is illustrated by the way the God, and it is a God, of alcohol consumption and drug consumption exists in our culture. Carol and I were watching the news the other night, and she was, I I think I had already seen the report in another earlier time, but she was seeing it for the first time, and she commented about this, this story about a tunnel under the Mexican border, highly sophisticated tunnel with tracks, with ventilation, with lighting, why? To get the marijuana from one side to the other. There have been dozens of these things. And, and Carol's just exclaimed, look at the trouble, look at the expense and the work that people go to to make drug money. Well, of course, humanity is addicted to grabbing and having the things that are worth nothing, the things that are even negative in their value to you or destructive to you. But compare those with the gifts freely offered by our great God and Savior, the gift of forgiveness from sin, the gift of guidance by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, peace of heart, assurance of future destiny, the open door of heaven. These things, people push away. You know, it's as if God says, hold out your hands, I'll pour diamonds into them. We say, no, thank you, God, I like glass beads. I'll take glass beads. I don't want diamonds. The truth is that our field will be better tilled, our oxen will be better cared for, our brides will be more tenderly loved if we have sought first the kingdom of God 
and his precious gifts. Now, thirdly and quickly, this parable of the great banquet ends with Jesus telling us this. God's banquet, one way or another, will certainly be filled. It will be filled. Those people who were invited who don't want it will not be there. The Scripture speaks about a judgment day when excuses and subterfuges and cover-ups and masquerades will all be stripped away, and we will be before God, as Romans puts it, without excuse. And all the evasions and all the delays and all the saying, oh, yes, I knew about the gospel of Christ, but I just didn't want to be that involved with all those people in the Christian church in my lifetime are going to be stripped away. And they'll look like a lunatic's folly. But the Father's house will be filled. If Israel doesn't come, the Gentiles will have. And that's certainly a message that's, that's not buried too deep in this chapter. If Israel won't come, then those who are the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind who are already far out there at the edges of the landscape, they will come, we'll go after them and even compel them to come. And the Gentiles will have that opportunity. Notice how the text has Jesus saying, go, don't just go down the main highway, go to the lanes and the back alleys. Find the people who are sitting there crumpled up, begging at the corner, the crippled person, the blind, the lame, the person who you're probably going to have to take by the hand and say, yes, there really is a feast, and you're really invited. And you may even have to take him. It says, compel him. You have to take him by the arm and say, come, I'll show you. And when the hall wasn't filled yet, the master said, go farther out. Go out to the hedgerows, the edge of town. Find the people who really can barely believe your invitation. Tell them that they're welcome, that they can come. And certainly millions have come. And millions more, if Jesus tarries longer in our generation, will come. Ladies and gentlemen, the gospel that Christmas made possible tells you, you can come. Have you come? You say, sure, here I am sitting in the church. Why would you ask me that? Because I know there are people in any gathering of this size who are here for one reason or another, but not because you've come. You could tell me about coming. You could tell me the formula. Maybe you've grown up as a covenant child in the church, and for generations, for 40 years, you've heard the gospel. You could tell me very effectively what the gospel is, and I could turn to you and say, thank you for telling it to me, Has that gospel changed your life? Is that Lord you've just told me about, that Christ who came to a cross, the all-consuming interest of your life? Have you come to him? Have you put your hopes in his banquet? There isn't anything more important than this. Not anything. Not any shopping you have to do. Not any obligation of your career. Not any tie to your family or whatever's on your list to do tomorrow. Nothing is more important than knowing you have come to the master's banquet. And I hope there are many who would say, especially as we're here at the Lord's table, well, the way I came was simply in finding out that I was a broken beggar. I was a blind man who didn't see. 
I was the one who had to argue with the person who told me about this banquet because I couldn't believe God would have a place there for me. I say, praise the Lord, if that's what you describe yourself. Because you're the one, more than any other, who belongs at the banquet. Anything you put up for not coming to Christ in full faith as the Son of God who can save you and transform you is nothing but an excuse. It's not a reason. I pray, God, you will see your excuses stripped away now and forever. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this picture Jesus painted. May we be the ones who are out there in the alleys all rolled up in a ball with a tin cup in our hand thinking no one will ever give a banquet for me. Convince us, Lord, that this is how you found us and it's why we can come because you determined that we are invited. Thank you for Christ who made this banquet possible, the salvation of eternity, all in his name and by his cross and resurrection. We give you praise. Amen.